and a warm welcome to City Break Ideas, episode 19. I'm Marion Jones, and City Break Ideas is my usually monthly roundup, borrowing ideas from all sorts of other travel bloggers, trying to give you both a sense of their websites and what you might find if you go and have a look, which I surely hope you will. The links will all be on the show notes, of course, but also giving you quite a detailed rundown on a couple of City Breaks that they did, what they found, where they went what they can tell us that might help you decide whether you'd like to visit or perhaps revisit those places. I use the phrase usually monthly just now because, in fact, in November there was no city break ideas. I got so excited by the idea that I actually managed to leave the country and go and do some proper foreign research, in Paris since you ask, that I left that month out. Anyway, doesn't matter, we're back with a bang and I've got quite an episode lined up for you. So I've been a-googling on three different websites, all with the owner's permission, of course. And this month's episode is going to include two big-hitter European cities, a venture into the Middle East to somewhere that City Breaks has not been before. We are going to cover both New York and Mexico, so both North and Central America. And, excitingly, we are off to the Forbidden City, that part of Beijing which used to be locked away and Not for the likes of us, but only for emperors and important people. So, as usual, a real variety and lots of interesting people to meet. Starting with Angie, who runs the website whereangiewanders.com and introduces herself like this. Firstly, I am not a digital nomad, but I do consider myself a wanderer. I haven't given it all up to travel the world, but I have spent three decades researching and booking independent travel myself, family and friends. I enjoy talking about my travels and planning itineraries, so after many years of pondering about it, I have finally decided to write about my experiences to inspire others to wander in my footsteps. It's quite a varied website. As she says, she's been lucky enough to stay in some of the world's finest hotels and resorts, but, quote, I am just as happy to be in a treehouse, a shepherd's hut, a tent, a boat, in fact anything, slightly out of the ordinary. So, as per usual, I'm going to give you a little introduction to the site itself, and then we're going to hone in on a couple of cities which I've picked out to talk about particularly today. There's a section called Discover England, which has posts on London and on nine other areas. Examples from that would be a post called Where to Spot New Forest Ponies in Hampshire, and there's another one called Nine Quirky Places to Stay in Dorset. And if you're wondering what Angie means by quirky, let me say there's a woodland pod in Swanage, there's a stable conversion in Cern Abbas, and my absolute favourite, wait for it, a Ways Forge in Piddle Hinton. If you're not familiar with Dorset, you may not realise that's the sort of name they give their villages. Anyway, whatever is it, okay? Angie explains, it is from the 1830s a, quote, renovated blacksmith's workshop which was a working forge. Okay, so Piddlehinton's the village. The forge is what the building used to be. What about the ways? Ah, she's got an explanation for that too. This was, quote, a working forge run by five generations of the Way family. And still in that section on England, among the London entries, you'll find things like a post about a secret garden in a ruined London church near the Tower, something most people never find, incidentally. And there's another post on ten luxury afternoon tea ideas in central London. Lots of global destinations too. There's Europe, Africa, Asia, Oceania, 
the Middle East, and I'm coming back in a minute to pick from there the post on Abu Dhabi and talk about that. There's a further section called Three Night Breaks, with a dozen or so ideas. From there I've picked the Venice Post, come back to talk about that in a minute. And lastly, there's a section called Hotels, Resorts and Travel Resources. A really useful roundup of all the sort of stuff that you need to know or be able to find out if you're booking for yourself. A roundup of websites that are useful, resources for things like accommodation, restaurants, money, all sorts of things. So much for the overview then. Let's go out to the Middle East and have a look at Abu Dhabi. Precisely, in fact, Angie's post entitled Five Best Things to Do in Abu Dhabi, which opens like this. If you've never been to the United Arab Emirates, then the capital, Abu Dhabi, is a good first stop for you. It's smaller than its neighbour, Dubai. It will allow you to be gently immersed in all that this area of the world has to offer. I have to say, I could really relate to that, being someone who has yet to venture anywhere near the Middle East. So, the top five in the post are, and I'll read you the list, the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, the Emirates Palace, Yaz Island, the Louvre, Abu Dhabi, and the Etihad Towers Observation Deck. So I thought I'd pick out a couple of those to tell you a little bit more about what Angie has to say. The Grand Mosque. No matter what your faith or denomination is, she says, a visit here should be at the top of your list. It's breathtaking. It has the capacity to hold 40,000 worshippers and visitors. Oh, and as an aside, it also has the world's largest chandelier, weighing an amazing 12 tonnes. Think 24-karat gold, Swarovski crystals, that sort of thing. There are details about what there is to see there on the post. There's a helpful advice about the dress code, some absolutely glorious photos, and the post ends like this. I recommend going just before sunset so that you will witness the way the colours and atmosphere inside the mosque change as shadows are thrown around each area. So I'm going to gloss over three of the other things that Angie mentioned, the palace, about which she says, where else can you get a 24-karat gold-plated cappuccino? And Yaz Island, which she tells us is for beach lovers and adrenaline junkies. And the Etihad Tower, with its splendid 360-degree view of Abu Dhabi's skyline, and focus a little bit on the other Louvre. Anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know that France is the country that most excites me. Paris is my favourite city. I love the Louvre, and to think that there's another one in the Middle East, well, I want to know more. And reading this really made me want to go. So yes, of course it has a French atmosphere, but it's also very much not French. It is, for example, a series of 55 detached white buildings, which are like an art installation in their own right, says Angie. They imitate an Arabian Medina. And the centrepiece of all of this magnificence is a huge silvery dome, which, Angie says, seems to float above the whole museum area, a true feat of engineering. Oh yes, and then of course there's the art. 8,000 square metres of gallery, priceless pieces from prehistoric artefacts to striking pieces of contemporary art. I found this to be a really useful post. I must be honest, I had not considered visiting Abu Dhabi, but having read this, I'm intrigued, and I'm going to put it on my maybe list, one day perhaps. In complete contrast from the three-night break section, there's a post on Venice. I think that's probably on everybody's maybe list, whether they've been or haven't been. That was very much the case for Angie. She's been wanting to go for decades, 
and in the end she booked it as a celebration of her 29th wedding anniversary. A three-day itinerary has now been written up on the website along with lots and lots of useful links to transport, to accommodation. There's a whole section entitled Where to Eat and all of this interspersed with cultural and historical information. So let's take it day by day. Day one, a wander into central Venice, which Angie tells us consists of six districts. I did not know that. I've heard of some of them, San Marco, and imagine where that might be. One called San Polo, another Santa Croce. And she explains that Venice is composed of 118 different islands. And I bet if I asked you to guess how many bridges there are in the city, you would underestimate. It's in the hundreds. It is, in fact, 438. And usefully, she's included a little section on exactly how to use the water transport system, without which, let's face it, life is going to be difficult in Venice. And right on her first evening, she liked what she saw. You'd be forgiven, she writes, for imagining that you were walking through a film set, as nothing has been altered, and modernity hasn't yet taken hold. I think this must be one of the best cities in Europe which I have ever visited. Moving on to day two then, she did a walking tour which produced lots of great photos. There's a little aside on masks in Venice, which makes very interesting reading. People wore them, she explains, perhaps because they wanted to conduct an illicit affair. Or perhaps they were a businessman who didn't want their dealings to be common knowledge. They were worn during the plague as well. Something we can now all better relate to in the 21st century. Angie explains that the masks worn during plague times were very long with animal-like noses which they were stuffed with herbs to mitigate against the dreadful stench of death and decay which would have been everywhere in the city. But it's certainly not all doom and gloom. There's a little section on snacks as well and some advice. Go to one of the, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, I think maybe Chiquetti bars. They're little bars which sell small slices of bread with different toppings. They'll cost you about €1.50 each. You can buy a glass of wine to go with it for a pound. And they are unique to Venice. And remember, says Angie, do not refer to them as tapas because the Venetians don't like that. She mentions a few things that they saw on their tour which would be useful for anybody to go back and look at. For example, a shop with a roof that you can climb up to for a 360-degree view of the city, completely free. And she explains how their day ended with an evening tour of St Mark's Basilica and the Doge's Palace. It was a little group tour, very personal, and, as Angie explains, quote, the highlight for me was entering the Basilica in total darkness and experiencing the lights coming on, one by one, to illuminate the golden mosaics and artworks. And on day three, then, they did a day trip to some of the islands. Little explanation is provided. There's Murano, known for its glass blowing. There's Burano, known for its colourful houses and lace making. And Torcello, where the Basilica di Santa Maria Assunta is, a church you'd visit particularly to see the Byzantine mosaics. They did a trip to Murano, had a canal-side lunch, went off to Burano after that, and she gives a link here to a separate entry on Burano itself. And then she explains that that evening, after their trip, they went to the Dorsoduro area of Venice, that's the university district, full of casual eateries, artisan shops, and two of the city's main art galleries, the Peggy Guggenheim Modern Art Museum and the Galleria dell'Accademia, full of, quote, classic Venetian masterpieces. This area, says Angie, has a bohemian vibe, a bit quieter than San Marco, so a nice place 
to spend your last evening. And right at the end of the post, an answer to the question, was it worth a 29-year wait to visit Venice? And the answer, a resounding yes. So thanks to Angie very much for letting me share some of what's on her website with you. Do go and have a look. There's so much more that I haven't had time to mention. Lots more city breaks, lots of other things too. Moving on then to our second stop, which is travelaroundthegalaxy.com, run by Norma and Rob. Norma's from Mexico, Rob's from Canada, and they describe themselves as adventure specialists, world travellers, photographers and storytellers. They are currently living on a Caribbean island called Cozumel, off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. And when they go travelling, they sometimes spend quite a while in the areas they visit. For example, two months in Mexico and South America. And Travel Around the Galaxy is the website on which they write up all the highlights and things that they want to share. It too has various sections. One's called Storytelling, which has half a dozen write-ups of trips that they've done. Some of them, I think, Rob Solo trips. For example, one called Journey to the End of the World, which is, in Rob's words, a backpacker's odyssey to Tierra del Fuego and back. Another of these storytelling entries describes a Canadian Rockies road trip. And also in that section, a whole piece on travel quotes. Far, far too many to mention. There are five different sections, I think. I picked the middle section, burrowed into the middle of that, and picked out a couple that I quite liked. So here's one from Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote, There are no foreign lands. It is the traveller only who is foreign. And then there's another one by someone I haven't heard of, John Green, who's explaining why it is that people get that urge to just go somewhere else. I'm in love with cities I've never been to, he writes, and people I've never met. There's a completely different section, might be the highlight of the whole website, I think, called Travel Photography. Clearly not such an easy section to deal with uh, through the medium of voice, so I can only really say, go look. There is loads. There are, for example, dozens of little sections on Canada and on Mexico. So to take Canada as an example, there are 10 subsections on British Columbia, with, for example, one called Eagle Bluffs and Cabin Lake, which is a little write-up of a hike they did, and 20 or more absolutely glorious photographs. There are several posts on the Mayan ruins in Mexico, posts on New York and other places in the US, South America, Africa, Asia, Europe. And to give you an idea of the scope, I thought I'd have a look at some of the sections on New York. There are 14 of them, so I picked the one called Central Park and Upper Manhattan, which again has 30 or so photographs, lots of them of Central Park, sights to see there, views from the park out, and an accompanying write-up which says things like this. Upper Manhattan is New York's other downtown. You'll find most of the iconic places in this cluster of the city. Everything from the Empire State Building to Times Square and Broadway are here. This part of town is a buzz of activity and is the place to visit if you're a tourist in New York. There is, for example, quote, the sensory overload that is Times Square. You've seen it in the movies and in pop culture but nothing really prepares you for what a 360-degree experience it is. A buzz of activity, and hard to capture in a single sentence or fit into the frame of a single picture. Times Square is everywhere. There's a write-up of their trip to Central Park, just after Times Square, about which they write, talk about travelling from one extreme to the next. 
Then after that, they went down Fifth Avenue, which is, quote, where many of the most posh and fancy stores are located, from Saks to Tiffany's. They went inside the magnificent St. Patrick's Cathedral, went to the ice rink at the Rockefeller Centre, and finished up at Grand Central Terminal to get a subway into Queen's. Grand Central, of course, being such an amazing station that it's a tourist venue in its own right. They even do guided tours there, I think. Anyway, it's a write-up where the words and the pictures combine to make you think, yes, New York, gotta go back there. But also would be very handy, I think, if you hadn't been, because it picks out the places that you're most likely to want to visit, so you could construct your own itinerary reading what's there. A different section again on Robin Norma's website is called Travel Guides, and again, there is loads. There are cities and mountains and national parks, and I thought I'd pick out one just to give the flavour. So I hit on a post called Eight Incredible Things We Did in Mexico City. They went for three days. They write, We know it will take us many trips to truly master Mexico City, but we like to think we've taken a pretty good snapshot of it. And so far, there are only eight things that we're confident enough to recommend. One of the prettiest, they say, is a place called the Palacio de Belles Artes, which is a concert hall and art gallery. A stunningly beautiful white marble building sparkles in the sunshine with a distinct orange and yellow roof that you can spot from a distance. Inside, you'll find many great pieces from some of Mexico's most famous artists. Rob, or is it Norma, I'm not sure, has written, We don't like to pick favourites, but here they're making an exception because they say some of the most impressive things in the gallery are the spectacular murals by Diego Rivera. The famous one, for example, Carnival of Mexican Life. But the whole building's incredible, decorated inside in an Art Deco style. No wonder, they say, it is sometimes referred to as the Cathedral of Art in Mexico. Somewhere else they liked was the historic centre, Plaza Zocolo, the largest plaza in the whole of Latin America, room for over a 100,000 people, and links to all sorts of historical periods, the Aztecs, the colonial Spanish era, and modern-day Mexico. You can explore all of that, they say, within a few blocks. If you want to think food, then go to the Mercado Roma, one of the best foodie destinations in the city. One part beer garden, one part market, and one part food court. It's overwhelming, they say. When you first walk in the doors, there are so many different food stands. Tacos, sandwiches and desserts in all directions. And what they suggest you do is find your way in go upstairs and get seats on the second floor balcony because from there you'll have a great view of the market and you'll be able to begin to decide what's there and what you fancy. As they explain, someone was quick to offer us drinks and we started with a few different local craft beers. Then we tried an incredible beef brisket sandwich, a bone marrow taco and eventually churros for dessert. It was a lot to take in and we were stuffed by the time we left. They finish by saying the market's quite unique and a bit like the city itself, it brings together so many different styles and cultures all in one place. And Rob and Norma, thank you very much. I think we can agree that your website does the same. So just to repeat, that's travelaroundthegalaxy.com and remember there'll be links in the show notes to all three of the websites which I'm covering today. Which brings me on to the third one, casierwrites.com. And as Kasia explains in the introduction to her site, there are loads of different things about travel that she enjoys. Quote, I'm a self-professed castle, architecture and art lover. 
I'm happiest when exploring ancient ruins, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, cultural sites and museums. But I also love epic landscapes, outdoor adventures and connecting with nature whenever I can. So, loads of variety and all, as Kasia goes on to say, with the aim of providing readers with in-depth information about the places that she's been to. She has a degree in history and so, quote, I'm all about finding out interesting stories and curious facts from the past and I love to tell those stories in an entertaining and engaging way and bring the past to life. So, again, lots of sections on the site. There's Europe, France, Italy, Latvia, Portugal, North America, South America and Asia. Digging down a little into Asia, I found Hong Kong, Shanghai, somewhere I'm afraid I'd never heard of called, I hope I'm going to say this correctly, Kutub Minar, which is a UNESCO heritage site in India, dating back to the 12th century. That sounded very intriguing. But in the end, as you'll hear in a minute, I chose the irresistible Forbidden City of Beijing post to talk about a little more. Under a section-headed blog, subheadings give you some idea of the variety on offer, adventure, culture, museums, sustainability, and some unexpected things that don't really fit into any category. For example, there was an intriguing piece on the European Grand Tour, which 19th century well-off young men used to go in for. Gives a little of the history, explains how it was a rite of passage for them, tells us why in the end it all had to stop, and then intriguingly goes on to give a suggestion for a 21st century version of saying. Anyway, from the blog section, I picked a piece on the Jewish Quarter in Prague, and I'll be talking about that in a minute. So, the Forbidden City in Beijing, and also known, as Casio explains, as the Palace Museum, dates back to 1420 and was home to no fewer than 24 Chinese Ming and Qing emperors, which, as Casio points out, means it wasn't really for regular folks. And it was in operation under that system until 1924. By 1949, however, it was opened to the public. And if you're wondering where it is, just off Tiananmen Square. As you enter the main gate, writes Kasia, you will find yourself in a massive courtyard, which turns out to be the first of many, because this is a complex of buildings, surrounded by courtyards and plazas and intricate walls. You can walk round and, quote, imagine emperors gliding across the stone walkways from one elegant building to the next. It is, says Kasia, completely overwhelming, just the sheer size of the place, the intricacy of the design details. There are lots of glorious photos. Do go and have a look. But altogether a place where you can be transported back in time. No modern distractions, no cars, no skyscrapers. A real glimpse, says Kasia, into a time of imperial China. The photos are definitely a highlight. There are golden dragons and courtyards, temple roofs, decorative pillars, waterways, which all combine to give the sense of that other world, which is the Forbidden City, just off Tiananmen Square in Beijing. And for Kasia's second post to talk about, I picked one which is slightly different. It's about the Jewish Quarter in Prague. City Breaks has been to Prague before, but not really specifically to the Jewish Quarter. But what makes this post difference is that it's written up after a virtual experience press trip. But I was struck by how much Kasia learnt and saw, and how in times when proper travel just isn't possible, this really can be an alternative from which you can gain a great deal. And as it happens, I'm recording this on a day right at the end of November 2021, 
when yet another new and possibly dangerous-sounding variant of the Covid virus has been discovered and travel restrictions are on their way back. So, Kazia explains that the Jewish community in Prague has a very long history, dating right back to the 10th century, and mostly, I'm afraid, a history of persecutions, expulsions, the Holocaust and anti-Semitic persecution under the communist regime. She does explain quite a lot of the history from the ghettos of the 11th century, the persecutions as far back as the Middle Ages, during which the Jews were forced to wear a yellow star as identification and were limited as to what they could do. She tells us too about periods of prosperity in the 16th century, for example, when the population almost doubled, becoming a home for Jewish people expelled from other parts of Europe. And she writes about the demolition of most of Prague's Jewish quarter at the end of the 19th century, when much that was insanitary was removed and rebuilt, using Paris as inspiration, that being why you can find lots of incredible Art Nouveau buildings still there in the city today. Then she tells us about some of the places you can go and visit, six ancient synagogues, including a 13th century old new synagogue, and the old Jewish cemetery, founded in 1478, and one of Europe's largest Jewish cemeteries. But there are people too. Stories of how authors like Franz Kafka made the home in Prague, right at the beginning of the 20th century, and tales of the bravery of some of the residents during the Second World War. One, Friedel Dicker Brandeis, for example, was an artist who lived in the Jewish quarter when the war broke out, and who was deported to the concentration camp Theresienstadt with her husband. She took with her a suitcase filled with art supplies, and she taught art to children in the camp, right up until 1944, when she was sent to Auschwitz and died. Her husband survived, and he oversaw the collection of more than 5,000 pieces of art done by her students, which are now exhibited at the Jewish Museum in Prague. Then there's the story of Nicholas Winton, the British banker, a son of German-Jewish parents who had emigrated to Britain, who arranged the rescue of over 600 children, mostly Jewish, from Czechoslovakia at the beginning of World War II. He arranged safe passage for them, arranged homes in Britain for them when they got here, and saved so many lives. His work was pretty much not known about until 2003, when he was knighted by the Queen. And, says Kasia, there's something else that you can look out for when you're in Prague, and that's the Stolpersteine, which is German for stumbling stones. They're little stones or plaques embedded in the pavement, outside houses and buildings where people who were deported lived, to commemorate them. These Stolpersteine list their name, their birthday, and the date and place of their death, which was very often in a concentration camp. So all in all, a post with lots to tell you about Prague and its history, and a link at the end to one of Katia's other posts, which is called 10 Awesome Tips for What to Do in Prague, so focusing on the whole of the city, rather than only the Jewish quarter. Such has been the detail of this entry, you've probably forgotten that this was a virtual experience and not a real one, and Kasia ends the post by writing this. A virtual experience doesn't always deliver the full familiarity of visiting a destination. However, I will say that my virtual tour of Prague's Jewish quarter was a poignant and immersive experience. Our guide, Nicola, took us through the city, highlighting the fascinating stories of the Jewish people who left their mark there. So, many thanks to Kasia too for her input to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed all the places that you've been to via the entries I've picked out to talk about, 
And can I remind you that if you run a travel website or know someone who does and would like it to be featured, please do write and let me know. I like to cover a full variety from all sorts of different people. And while I do always hone in eventually on cities that you've written about, your website doesn't have to focus only on those, as I think you've heard today from the ones that I've covered. I think most people who enjoy City Breaks have another side to them and like to hear about all the other travel possibilities too. So if you do have any suggestions, do send them in. You can email citybreaks at citybreakspodcast.co.uk or you can find us on Twitter at citybreakscast. Or indeed, if you just have comments, let me know. I enjoyed this month, for example, hearing from Sarah from Roads and Runways, a website I covered last time, who took the trouble to write in and say, we really like the podcast. You've done such a good job of describing our site. And then she went on to comment that, yes, I had done my best with the Hungarian pronunciation required, and she too had found it tricky. Can I just finish by saying that next week's episode, we'll be back to the Edinburgh series, which is now underway. There have been three episodes so far. The introduction, of course, and then we've been to the castle and the Palace of Holyrood House. So the two sites at either end of the Royal Mile. So episode four next week will be all about everything that's in between. Edinburgh's much-loved, world-famous, super-interesting Royal Mile. And some stories from history which will illustrate what you see if you go and visit the city today. Do join me for that. But meanwhile, thank you very much for listening today. And of course, particular super-duper thanks to Angie, to Norma and Rob, and to Kasia, and goodbye.